power of how much you care for us. And we just lay our hearts before you tonight. We say thank you. We appreciate you. We love you. We don't take you for granted. And we consider it a privilege to honor and worship you with our praise. For you deserve all the glory and all the honor. There is no one like you in all the earth, in all of heaven. Father, we adore you. And truly, we stand in awe of you. We give you the praise in this place in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. It's good to see you all in God's house. God bless you. I'm glad that you made it this weekend. What a great weekend. We have one more opportunity this weekend to preach the gospel than normal four services here at our New Milford location. Somebody said, Pastor, how are you going to do all that? I said, I'm young. I'm strong. I'm able. Through Christ, I can do all things. Amen. Praise the Lord. Well, it's good to see you all. Welcome to all of our campuses. Welcome to our New York City campus. I'm going to see you live and in person in two weeks at our new location, and I can't wait to be there. We're back in Midtown, y'all. Isn't that great? We're so excited about it. And the way God worked it out is our rent dropped like it was 20000 when we first went to Midtown a month. 20000 a month. It's like 3600 a month now. I mean, that's phenomenal. We thank God. We'll take a blessing anywhere we can get it, even if God got to shut down the whole city in order to give us 30. No, I'm just, that's kind of left-handed. Anyway, it's good to see you all. Good to see Wilkit. How are you, Wilkit? We're glad I'm going to see you soon there, too. And, of course, our New Milford location, everybody watching out in the um, virtual world, we're glad you all tuned in. We know God is going to speak to your hearts. If you have your Bible, would you take it out? Here, do it at home, do it in New York City, do it at Wilkett. Hold it up nice and high, open your heart. Say this out loud with me. This is my Bible. It is my primary source of spiritual nourishment. I will read it every day and become all that God wants me to be. My mind will be renewed. My life will be transformed. I will become fully surrendered to Christ. Therefore, I will hide his word in my heart so I can be... All God destined me to be. Amen. Y'all sound good. I'm sure you sound good at all of our locations. If you have your Bible, 2 Timothy chapter number 3, please remain standing in honor of God's word. Beginning in verse number 1. The scripture says, but know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers. Disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, because the enemy is sneaky, but denying its power from such people turn away. Today we are continuing in our series, Alternate Universe. And if you don't think we are living in an alternate universe, all you had to do was tune into the debates on Tuesday night. We entered a new realm of craziness, but I digress. Today, I want to pick up where we left off last week, and I want to minister to you on the subject that I'm calling Hall of Faith Closers. Hall of Faith Closers. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we Thank you for speaking to us clearly and distinctly. We thank you for helping us to grow and challenging our faith. 
We also thank you for reaching every heart that is far from you and that needs to be encouraged today. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, you may be seated. You might recall from last week that this scripture is a distinct description of what the last days will look like. And specifically, the signs that we will see all around as we come to the end of the age and draw nearer to the return of Christ for the gathering of his church. The scripture depicts that the end of the age will be marked by perilous times. And we looked at this in detail last week. These are dangerous times. That's what it means, perilous, tense, tumultuous, emotionally difficult times. Times marked by people, notice the list, lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, and the list goes on and on. When you read that list, you might notice that it sounds and looks a lot like what our world is experiencing right now. And we looked last week into two particular signs, blasphemy, and we said that this was more than just blasphemy of the Holy Spirit or blasphemy of God, but it was distinctively slanderous or derogatory words that were spoken for the purpose of injuring or harming someone else's reputation. And that is what the discourse is like today. And then we said it will also be marked by disobedient to parents. Children will demand their own rights at young ages, uh, exempting or pushing their parental guidance aside and making decisions that are life-altering at young ages without the input of their parents who have been charged to raise them up into adulthood. Today I want to go into a third sign before we get to the main crux of what I believe God wants to share with us today. And it is the lead sign in the long list that is given to us in 2 Timothy chapter number 3. And it says again, but know this, that in the last days perilous times will come for men will be lovers of themselves. Does anyone love themselves? That's good. Some of you are like, well... I'm not, I'm not, not sure when I'm supposed to love myself or not. Does anyone feel like Joe Namath? They, they get better looking every day. Does anyone feel like I do when I look in the mirror sometimes? I need a license to go out looking this good. I mean, does anybody, does anybody love themselves? And you might be saying, well, Pastor, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of shy raising my hand here because, you know, loving yourselves is in the list. And this, this list is not so good. I mean, a lot of things in this list. And I'm thinking that loving myself may not be a good thing. Truth of the matter is that, that everybody should love themselves. Matter of fact, the second greatest commandment out of the lips of Jesus, second only to loving God, is Matthew chapter 22, verse number 39. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so the first part is the part we always major on, and we should, especially in the day and age and the times in which we live, because that's a message all by itself, love your neighbor. And somebody said, well, who's my neighbor? Any human being on the planet is your neighbor. Remember the story of, 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 of the Good Samaritan? 
It was a story told so that we would define our neighbor correctly because in Bible times, they defined their neighbors as only other Jews who obeyed the scriptures like they did. But Jesus expanded the hood to include everybody that is on the planet, not just people who sound like you, vote like you, look like you, act like you, believe like you, but anybody who is a human being is your neighbor. And according to this text, we are to love our neighbor, but we fall short because of the second part as ourselves. Matter of fact, how I love you and feel about you directly affects, how I love me and feel about me directly affects how I love you. If I'm not happy with me, if I'm not content with me, if I'm not at peace with me, if I'm not secure in me, I will project my insecurities on you and be jealous of you, disloyal to you, harsh toward you, unforgiving toward you, unkind toward you, envious of you, uncompassionate toward you, harsh with you, inconsiderate of you, and unloving toward you. Fact is, if I don't love me, I can't love you. Fact is, the way I treat you has more to say about how I feel about me than it does about how I feel about you. And so when you see people acting a fool towards somebody else, don't, that's not a reflection really of the person that they are mistreating. It is a reflection of how they feel about them. Because when we are secure about how we feel about us, we project that onto other people. Can you say amen? Can we just leave the projector just like it is? Don't worry about it. Thank you for trying. We have to understand that how we feel about us directly affects how we're able to treat other people. And why shouldn't we love ourselves? God loves us. God thinks the world of us. He said there's only some that die for us. He considers us to be the apple of his eye. He considers us to be the crown jewel of his creation. Matter of fact, listen to what God says about you. For we are God's masterpieces. He sounds like Pastor Dan. You're a masterpiece. Those of you that know Pastor Dan. God's masterpieces. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things. He planned for us long ago. Listen to how God feels about you. Psalm 139, verse number 16. You saw me before I was born. That means my life didn't necessarily begin when I entered the earth. And my life actually backed up even before I entered the womb. We talk about life beginning at conception, and that's partially true. But the conception that it really begins at is the conceiving of us in the mind and heart of God first and foremost, he said, you saw me before I was in the, before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. How precious are your thoughts about me, O oh God. They cannot be numbered. I can't even count them. They outnumber the grains of the sand. And when I wake up, you're still with me. God's got you on his mind day and night. He's constantly thinking about you. He's thinking about somebody that just like we think about each other when we fall in love with one another as human beings. God, that, that feeling, that, that mindset, those thoughts never change for God. We are always on God's mind. We can spend the rest of our time today talking about how God feels about us. That he loves us with an everlasting love. We can go from Bible story to Bible story. We can talk about the story of Goma who is told to marry a harlot, Hosea. And talk about how that's a type of how God loves us when we don't deserve it. 
We can go to the story of the prodigal son and his father who waited on him to come home and ran to him when he was afar off after he despised and rejected his father and talk about how that's a picture of God outweighting our wandering and welcoming us back home when we have strayed away. We could go to the story of David, the overlooked shepherd boy who God called a king. And we could talk about when nobody else sees anything good in you, that God sees a king in you. We could go to the story of Peter and how he denied Christ while he was being crucified and how Jesus prayed for him, that his faith would not fail. And talk about how even when we turn our back on God, God turns his love toward us. We could go to the woman caught in adultery who Jesus protected from her unjust prosecutors, picked her up from the dirt, delivered her back, her dignity, and talk about how much he loves us, that he is constantly defending us when we are undefendable, dusting us off when we get dirty, and divinely standing by us when we have acted undeservingly. The truth of the matter is his love is like a tidal wave crashing over us, rushing to meet us here. It's like a hurricane that we can't escape tearing through the atmosphere. His love is fierce. So to not love yourself is to deny the greatness of who God created you to be. It's like the old song, red and yellow, black and white. We are precious in his sight. So what does this verse mean? 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse number 1. But know this. That in the last days, perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves. The phrase lovers of themselves would be better translated in love with themselves. In love with themselves. It's one thing to love yourself. It's another thing to be in love with yourself. When you are in love with yourself, just like when you are in love with someone else, you become excessively fond of yourself excessively attracted to yourself, excessively self-focused, excessively self-absorbed, excessively infatuated, excessively self-consumed. The word literally means a worship of self. Everything becomes, how does this affect me? Every decision is not focused on fairness or equity or justice or mercy or right and wrong, not on what the scripture says or doesn't say, but every description, every, every decision becomes focused on how does this affect me? This is the alternate universe that we're living in. This is a sign, the sign that the Holy Spirit leads with as the first sign in a long list of the signs of the end of times, that people will cast off what is right and just, how does this affect me? I want to know, how's it going to affect my life and what is it going to do to me and what kind of concessions am I going to have to make and what kind of sacrifices am I going to have to make and and do I really want to make these sacrifices and do I really want to go down that road or am I happy about the fact that this is good for me even if it's not good for everybody else because really I don't care about everybody else I just care about me and as we put it last week this is the sign of the end of the age of the last innings of time And we learned last week that in these last innings of time, that God has chosen us to be his closers, 
to be his, we put it, Mariano Rivera's of the age, to be the ones that are trusted to bring home the win, the ones that have been handed the great responsibility of representing him well in this final hour, to be the ones that rise above the rhetoric and the behavior of the time and represent, not represent a political party, but represent the Christ that we claim to serve because that is our mission is to represent him well. That's what God wants. Remember what the scripture said in First Peter chapter 2, verse number 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God. For he has called you out of darkness into this marvelous light. God's chosen. God's handpicked of all the people who have ever lived. If it's true that you saved the best for last, then we are the best of the best. Think about that. Could live at any time in history. But if this is the end of the age, if these are the last innings, divinely selected by God to live In this moment. And we are to live in this moment, not as victims of society, but as victors over society. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse number 14 says, Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ, and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. We are God's triumphant church, his victorious closers. This word victory, this word triumph is an important word. It literally describes a military soldier or general who has come back from defeating a foe, who has went into or onto enemy territory and has captured all of the spoil, the good things, the gold, the silver, all of the things that meant something and brought it back to their hometown. And when they came back to their hometown triumphant, there was a procession in honor of the military leader who had all of the foes in trail, but all of what was good, what was held captive, free. And what this is telling us is that we are triumphant. We are victorious closers. Our job is to go into the world and bring back everyone that the enemy has held captive. We're supposed to be what I'm calling Hall of Faith Closers. You all know the Hall of Fame. That's where you're honored if you are a great athlete. In Hebrews chapter 11, the Bible speaks of the Hall of Faith. Actually, it doesn't call it that, but it's been affectionately known as that. And in it, it extols all the virtues of those that have gone before us, what the Bible calls a, a great cloud of witnesses, literally a picture of the grandstands being filled with those that have gone on before us who are encouraging us and who are cheering us on or who are telling us to go for it. We are God's hall of faith closers. Well, how do you become a hall of faith closer? How do you make sure that you, you, you do the job that God has tasked you to do? First thing is you need to get your eyes off of yourself. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse number 1. In the last days, perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves. Self-love is the complete opposite of the behavior that Jesus instructs us to possess as Christians. Philippians chapter 2, verse number 3 says, do nothing out of selfish ambition. Nothing. How many believe that nothing means nothing? How many believe that God means what he says and says what he means? Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, check this, check this out. 
Value others above yourself. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself Nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in the appearance of a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him. Did you catch the first part of that? Therefore, consider or value others. Look at the language. Better, 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 not equal to. Better than yourselves. Imagine this world if we didn't just have to fight to be equal, but that everybody just considered their neighbor better than themselves. Not lower than themselves, but better than themselves. I mean, think about how mind-altering this is. Because when we hear that in our modern-day culture and society, in our meistic, we're in this for me, we love me, we're self-love and in love with ourselves, we think, ain't nobody better than me. You ain't better than me. I put my pants on the same way you put your pants on. You think you're better than me? Isn't that our attitude? But see, God tells us to approach everybody as if they're better than us. What does that simply mean? In a humble way. In a way that values who they are. This is graduate level Christianity. Because we have a hard enough time just treating people like they're equal to us. But to go a whole nother level and say, I'm going to treat you like you're better than me. I'm going to open the door for you. I'm going to, I'm going to compliment you. I'm going, to, I'm going to defer to you. I'm going to let you speak before I speak. I'm going to speak kindly to you, respectfully to you, honorably to you. I mean, think about how much this kind of stuff is needed in the day and age in which we live. Imagine our world if we valued people better than ourselves, not family better than ourselves, not close friends better than ourselves, not those that we look up to better than ourselves, but just plain old others better than ourselves, other human beings, people who I like and people who I don't. People who vote like me and people who don't. People who look like me and people who don't. People who I hang with and people who I hate. This takes a strong person. This takes somebody who loves themselves. Because you have to be extremely secure in who you are to defer to people and to treat people in a way that makes it seem like there's this, well, they're better than me. How do I do this, Pastor? Ask yourself, who are the people in my life who need my voice to bring an encouraging word to them? Who are the individuals who need my hand to impart a healing touch to them? Who are the ones that need my feet to bring them strength and support? How do I know that this is how God wants us to respond? How this is how we become hall of faith closers? Because at the end of time, 
when the small and the great, when the rich and the poor, when the black and the white, when we all stand before the almighty throne of God. In commendation, Jesus the King will say, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. How we treat people, God considers to be how we treat him. Well, this might get good in a minute here. Matter of fact, if we don't treat people properly, it is a reflection of the trueness of our relationship with the Lord. Because it is impossible. Think about things. Think about this. If, if, if people are masterpieces of God, that's what they are. If I just said that this presented you with art, and I said this is a masterpiece that God created. This is, this is, I want you to take this into your home. You know you're going to find a nice spot for that. You might, you might rope it off. Don't touch that. Leave that alone. Don't play with that. That's, that's, that's God's masterpiece right there. Don't, don't mess with it. Don't, don't, you're going to dust it. Make sure it's nice and clean. Polish it. Make sure it's, because that's God's masterpiece. Can I tell you something? Can I tell you something? You're sitting next to God's masterpiece. Each and every person. Masterpiece of Almighty God. If we're going to be Hall of Fame, Hall of Faith closers, we have to get our eyes off of ourselves. But number two, we need to get rid of a judgmental attitude toward people. Critical is the rage of the age. Tweet that right there. That's a good tweet. Critical is a rage is the rage of the age. We are living in a time where, as we pointed out, blasphemous language is on the rise where it's not just disagreeable language, but it's intentionally destructive to ruin your reputation type of language where we, are, where we are tearing people down. And we must be able to come to a place as carriers of truth. We have to be careful to be sensitive to the people behind the sin, the souls behind the sin. We have to judge like Jesus. Our job is to judge like Jesus. What do you mean, Pastor? Well, first remember, there is a difference between having sound judgment and being able to comprehend right from wrong and being judgmental, which is when we maintain a negative, nitpicking, disapproving, condemning, hypocritical attitude toward people. We must be able to judge a situation without being judgmental because this is what Jesus did. In John chapter number 8, for those of you that have been tuning in on Wednesday night and being obedient to the Lord by tuning in on Wednesday night, in John chapter number 8, Jesus is famously confronted with a woman, with the Pharisees, by the Pharisees, with a woman caught in adultery. The Pharisees want to condemn her to death in an act of unjust judgment. Truth is, she was a pawn in their political game to remain in power. Just going to let that sink in for a second. And they were using morality as a means to an end. They were using morality as a means. I could preach this. Using morality as a means, not because they cared 
about the moral indiscretion of the woman. They didn't care a rip about that. They didn't care that she was caught in adultery because they let one of their buddies off the hook who was also caught in adultery. Matter of fact, they probably patted him on the back. Way to go, Joe. Thanks for the hookup right here. Here's a couple hundred dollars for trapping this woman. They were using morality as a means to an end. And whenever morality is used without concern for people, that is a judgmental attitude. It is not the same thing as using sound judgment to discern right from wrong. And there are so many people who use morality in this way. It's a means to an end. Jesus didn't fall into their morally twisted use of morality. But he made a way for the woman to be free. He showed her the error of her way by seeing her soul as more important than her sin. He showed her the error of her way by seeing her soul as more important than her sin. He did for her the same thing that he did for us. He loved her while she was still a sinner. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How have we forgotten the most essential thing of the faith? But that's how Christ loved us. He protected her from the judgmental attitude of her accusers, looking beyond her sin to her soul. And after loving her soul, he was able to show her the error of her sin. In the last days, the world will be saturated with sin. We must not forget the souls behind the sin. We cannot forget the words of Scripture, James chapter 5, verse 20. Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. If we're going to be hall of faith closers, we have to... Get rid of a judgmental attitude toward people. That doesn't mean cast aside judgment. That doesn't mean start calling wrong right and right wrong. It simply means watch how we behave toward other people because before we see anything in somebody, that's a soul that God loves. That's a soul that God loves. That's a soul that God loves. It's amazing to me, and I know I'm going to get in trouble for saying this. Ruth Bader Ginsburg died, and conservatives praised it on their social media. Yes! Now we get one of ours on the court. I thought, we should care for a person's soul. President Trump got COVID. I hope he dies. Where's your concern for the souls of people? What has this world come to that we are happy about and wishing for people to die?
die have we lost track of that this world is temporary. It's here today and it's gone tomorrow. But when somebody leaves this earth, they go off into eternity. And I don't know about you, but I want somebody to be here as long as they need to in order to give their life to Jesus Christ so that when they leave this earth, I can really rejoice because they've been reconciled with their creator, not come on some sordid, twisted type of reasoning that wants somebody to die or glad somebody has died for my own selfish gain. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Number three, and lastly, if we're going to be Hall of Faith closers, we must assume that everyone needs encouragement. Remember, our text says that the last days will be perilous times, emotionally difficult, trying times. That means every day we are surrounded by people who are struggling. They're struggling in some way with with some things. There's personal issues going on. There's emotional issues. There's relationship issues. There's physical issues. We are going to be surrounded in the last days by hurting people. Many people will not open up about it, but they are carrying the weight of it. And God wants to use you, his hall of faith closers, to encourage them. Romans chapter 14, verse 19 says, Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. The word edify is the Bible word for encouragement. It literally describes a house that is fully built complete from the foundation to the roof. Whereas my good friend Charles Reed, who used to be our worship pastor here, he would say this, from the rooter to the tutor. From the foundation to the roof, to make sure something is wholly built, complete in every single way. This is what encouragement does. It supports from the foundation to the roof. In a world where people are tearing down one another, we are called to be people who build others up and encourage them. Let me close with a little story. It's a Bible story about a man by the name of Joseph. And when I say Joseph... Most of you think of Joseph from the Old Testament, the coat of many colors. But there is a Joseph that might be more significant in the Bible. Acts chapter 4 talks about him in verse 36. It says, there was Joseph, the one the apostles nicknamed Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He was from the tribe of Levi and came from the island of Cyprus. He sold a field he owned and brought the money to the apostles for those in need. Most of us have heard little about him, but he is one of God's best. He was a Levite, and as such, he was devoted to service to the Lord. He was tasked as a Levite with with being an assistant in the temple to the chief priest, either as a musician or as a doorkeeper or a temple guard or some other type of temple service. That's what Levites were supposed to do. That Joseph, this was an exciting thing for him, but, but he was never afforded this opportunity because notice the text said he came from the Isle of Cyprus, 
which tells us that at a very young age, Joseph was among those who have been exiled from Israel to that island. And as he got older, he made his way back home. But because he had grown up somewhere else, he was known by the Jews as a Hellenist, which is a Greek-speaking Jews that, Jew that was raised outside of Israel. Hellenists were considered by the Hebrew-speaking Jews to be less devout. They often picked up foreign ways, and they were there was a considerable amount of hostility between the Hellenists and the homeland Jews. Joseph could have focused on all the wrong that was done to him. But the scripture talks about him as being someone with no guile in his character. Matter of fact, his character was so much for other people that he sold the field that he had, and he gave it to the disciples so that the needs of people who were hurting could be met. His character and reputation so preceded him that they nicknamed him Barney. Barnabas. Son of encouragement. As they were saying, it's as if encouragement fathered him. Because encouragement in his, is in his DNA. He was the type of guy where every time he would see you, he'd say, don't you look nice. Look at that wonderful smile. I mean, isn't that dress? Have you lost weight? Look at you. You're looking slim right now. He wouldn't even tell the fat people that. He'd be like, oh, you look like you lost some serious weight right there. Joseph was encouraging everybody that he went into. He was looking at, the, you are special to God. You're a masterpiece. You are wonderful. Now, although Barnabas is not as well known as, for instance, the Apostle Paul, there would be no Apostle Paul without Barnabas. When the apostle Paul first gave his life to the Lord, many of those in the church didn't believe it was a true conversion. Others couldn't forgive him for everything that he did because he was a killer of those who believed in Christ. And so when the apostle Paul came in, the church gave him the Heisman. The church said, no, 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 we don't accept your kind in here. The church said, God can't really do a work in people like you. There are only certain types of people that Jesus can really save. And so the church pushed him away. And when the church pushed him away, Acts chapter 9, verse number 26 and 27 says Barnabas took Paul under his wing and Paul had it up to here with the church rejecting him and so Paul said forget about you and Paul went off to his hometown known as Tarsus and he was like you know what I can't stand these people I don't want to be around these people forget about these people but the Bible says in Acts chapter 11 verse number 25 that Barnabas went on to Tarsus to look for Saul he went there, and you know what he did? He showed him that not every Christian acts that way. He showed him that there are some Christians who really believe that God can change every single life. He showed him that there are some Christians who believe that every life really does matter to Almighty God. He showed him that there are some Christians who believe that God can take the worst of us and turn into the best of us. He showed him that there were really true believers. And because of him, because he was an encourager. He took this man who God had destined for greatness. He brought him back into the church. Brought him into fellowship. Paved the way for me. He stood by him until his feet were steady. And this man went on to write two-thirds 
of the New Testament. Church, think twice before we throw people away. Think twice. I, I know it may not look like they could be used by God. Let's start looking with spiritual eyes. Let's start looking beyond what the exterior is to what God sees in people. Let's be Hall of Faith closers. Let's, let's build people up. If it wasn't for Barnabas, there would be no Paul. Come on, church. Let's be encouragers in divisive times. Let's be people who speak life to others when death is seeking to assault everyone. Let's not be one more reason why people give up. Let's be the reason why people look up. Let's bring people to Christ instead of repelling people from Christ. That is our charge in this hour. Let's be hall of faith closers. That's what God has called every one of us to be. Would you stand to your feet? Take the wafer at all of our locations. When I think about the wafer we hold, I immediately, like all of you, think of the broken body of Jesus. This is what he was willing to endure. His body broken for us. The sacrifice. Him Valuing us as better than him, the king of the universe, the God of all of creation, caring so much about us that his body would be broken for each and every one of us. Today, I want you to know that this is how much he cares. His body was broken for you. If you're sick in your body, it was broken so that yours could be well. Hold it up. If you're not already, Father, we bless you in this place. Thank you for caring for us. Thank you for healing us. And Father, if there's anyone that's sick right now in Jesus' name, we pray for divine healing over their lives as they receive the broken body of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Go ahead and receive that. The cup. The Bible says it this way. It says that we have been redeemed not with corruptible things, such as silver and gold, but by the precious, and literally that what that means is priceless, above value, blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Someone once said to me that what you're willing to pay for something determines the value of that thing. This is what God was willing to pay for you. How valuable are we to God? How valuable are you to God? In a world where we devalue one another, God wants you to remember this because this is the value that he placed on you, the value of the blood. Father, we bless you in this place. We thank you for the blood. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. If you're listening, if you're here, and you feel like you have sin that is being held against you, it's time for you to accept the blood of Jesus. It can make you white as snow. Right where you are, if you need forgiveness of sin, this is where you get it. Not in anything that you can do. You can't say enough prayers to get rid of your sin. The blood of Jesus is the only thing that can get rid of your sin, and we are grateful for it. Go ahead and receive that. Before we leave, if that's you, if you're here today and you don't know if you're right with God, earlier today we 
said our goodbyes to I hope you don't get offended at this but the greatest member of our church that, that I have known in the 25 years that I've pastored 58 years old left this earth went home to be with Jesus and it just reminded me of how short life really is here today gone tomorrow it's a vapor on your tombstone even if you live a hundred years there will be a dash that is our lives if you're not right with God I implore you to surrender your life to Jesus if you're in this building if you're watching at one of our campuses and you need to surrender your life to Jesus right there in your seat with no one looking around just hold your hand up to him as a sign of surrender if that's you here and you need to hold your hand up to him Jesus say this out loud with me let's all pray there might be one all heaven rejoices if just one sinner comes to salvation say it out loud heavenly father we surrender our lives we ask you to forgive us I ask you to forgive me as I put my faith in Jesus Christ I'll never be the same in Jesus name if you prayed that prayer for the first time, if you're here and it was the first time, flag an usher down. It's important that you do. If you're at one of our campuses, tell your campus pastor. If you're online, click the button that says, I gave my life to Jesus or write Jesus in the text. The most important decision you could ever make is to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. He loves you more than you ever know. We'll see you again next week. God bless you, everybody.